0: Well, we've got to hundred episodes. No one is more surprised about that than me. I have, I joke that I have never done a hundred of anything in my life apart from maybe rice. And I'd like to thank all of you who have listened, uh, all of my guests who have given their time free of charge to me and without them, there would be no podcast. And before we start today's show, I want to do a bit of housekeeping. I've had a number of notes from people and emails some of support but a few of them asking questions the most obvious question everyone asks me as soon as they know i'm doing a podcast is how do i monetize it uh, the answer is this podcast has been a labor of love since we started in january 2016. i will say that for me it has been one of the best things i've done with my life i have met so many interesting people who have shared their life experiences and wisdom and the things that have made all the difference and the errors that they've made in a very forthright and frank way. I've always had the feeling that this podcast would be a resource for younger people. Many of the people who I've had on the podcast have had difficult childhoods or they've not known what they were wanted to do when they were younger and they share how they managed to to get on the right track and if one podcast of, of A Pint with Shawnee B causes one kid somewhere to see the light, to have a better life, then it'll have all been worth it. It gives me a great purpose uh, to my own life um, since I sort of quit advertising and started writing um, and I hope to continue uh, with it. Some of the questions that came in, um, one person wanted to know what the top five episodes were. I have limited analytical data at my disposal thanks to SoundCloud, but I do know stuff like that. The top five episodes are episode one with Mundy, the Irish uh, musician. Really appreciative in hindsight for him to be the first cab off the rank. He didn't know anything about what was coming and neither did I. So thank you Mundy. And I'd urge anyone to check out his music. He's one of the great Irish singer songwriters. Number two on the list is episode three, Nicola a producer from Los Angeles. Uh, Number three is my good friend Andy Greenaway, the guy I've worked with for over five years out in Asia. Uh, Number four is Jamie McIver, who's a young guy who's really trying hard to uh, change the world in terms of its fuel consumption. And number five is Antonio uh, Fernandez, who is an ex-gang leader of the Latin Kings, a street gang in New York. And that was certainly one of my most challenging interviews and he was very gracious to me when I went in quite nervous <laughs> to interview him. Um, my own five uh, in no particular order and this is again off the top of my head I haven't really given a huge thought but Antonio would be one of my top five. Uh, I'd also uh, shout out to Craig Smith a guy who very honestly and forthrightly shared his battles with addiction and alcoholism. Uh, I also loved interviewing a guy called Bure in uh, Sarajevo, that was episode 37. That was my own foray into Spinal Tap. It was like my own version of Spinal Tap. I also feel the interview episode 33 with Tavis Sage Eaton, again, a guy who was out shooting for his country in the Gulf War and shared his difficulties and issues that he had when he came back, uh, still in his early twenties from a war and the problems he had and how he, he came through that. And the final uh, top five, I couldn't uh, not give a shout out to my partner, The Don, who in episode 85, during the middle of the Irish referendum to repeal the eighth, uh, she'd never been really on a podcast much before. She's not used to speaking, but she graciously gave her time and wisdom and knowledge on the subject to try and educate people uh, on that particular subject. So they would be my top five other questions i've had is where do where do all my listeners come from and how many listeners have i the analytics don't tend to give you great accuracy because there's so many different platforms that people listen on i have somewhere off the order i think of about 5000 listeners per week um, and that goes up and down depending on this on the episodes and the biggest countries listened to are the united states united kingdom ireland however one country and i would like to shout out i don't i don't really know why I seem to be quite listened to in Vietnam so hello to all my Vietnam listeners. Uh, Vietnam ranks as probably number six of countries that listen to A Pint with Shawnee B so hello to all my listeners there and thank you for your support. Uh, Those of you who are close followers of the show will also notice that I finally succumbed and set up a Patreon account which you can go to to uh, help fund the podcast. The podcast is as I said, a complete labor of love. It does cost me money to put it out there in terms of travel and accommodation and, you know, maintaining websites and stuff like that. So any amount of money you can contribute to that account in Patreon would be absolutely amazing. I always wanted to keep the show ad free, possibly due to the fact that I feel advertising has killed radio and podcasts are the resurrection of radio in a new guise. I certainly didn't want to be clogging my podcast with gratuitous ads for maybe products I didn't even believe in. So the Patreon account gives me a chance to get some sort of income from the podcast. You can go on there. For some reason, they ask you to pledge on a monthly basis. I've had some people come back saying, well, I don't want to give you money every month, but I will give you a donation. I think the way to do that is just to pledge and then cancel your credit card. I don't don't know why Patreon don't allow one off gifts, or they don't seem to I'm all new to this as well. But anything that you can give even if it's a dollar, even if it's a price of a pint, uh, that's the way I like to put it. It's called a pint with Shawnee B. If you can spot me a pint, I'd be really appreciative of it. So that uh, website again is patreon dot com backslash Shawnee B and you'll be able to contribute there. And everything no matter how small is welcome Okay, on to today's show. And for my 100th episode, I have a presidential candidate, somebody who is running for the presidency of Ireland. The vote will be taking place on the 26th of October, which is not long, not far away. Peter Casey is one of the outsiders of uh, six candidates, uh, including the incumbent Michael D. Higgins. The Irish presidency for overseas listeners is a largely titular role, but we have, for some reason, three businessmen, of which Peter is one vying to try and take uh, at the incumbent who originally promised he would only do seven years and has now said he wants to run for another seven uh, so you will get a little bit of the ins and outs of that. Peter Casey is an Irishman who has lived overseas for much of his life. He's a successful businessman. He's done a lot of work in the recruitment business working with such companies as Tata and he's a great believer in trying to harness the power of the Irish diaspora. He'll tell you his story Without further ado, I give you episode 100 of A Pint with Shawnee B. Thank you again, and I hope to see you at episode 200. Here's Peter Casey. This is the 100th episode of A Pint with Shawnee Bee. Uh, I'm in Dublin. I have a very, very interesting guest today, a guy I know, I've know i known for over 10 years. Uh, we met actually in at an Irish-American event in New York in about 2008, just as the entire global economy was collapsing. Uh, he is a man who is running for president of Ireland. He's only one of 21 people to have ever been on the ballot for President of Ireland, so that is quite the honour. And his name is Peter Casey. How are you, sir? Thank you very much. Good You're again. about two weeks into your campaign. How are you holding up? Are you enjoying it? Um, Yes, it's been
1: been uh, like drinking water from a fire hydrant, you know. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's amazing how little sleep you need.
0: You and, and, and what have been the ups and the downs so far?
1: There haven't really been any downs. You know, it's nothing that I didn't expect. I knew that you, you know, you, you don't just get all nice PR and all nice comments and you get a lot of negative. But I've got selective amnesia when it comes to, uh, you know, my my, my mistakes. You're hard uh, Yeah, sort of like my investment. You know, I, I can very conveniently forget the stocks that I've lost a lot of money on, you mm. know, and it's been a great experience. Met a lot of very interesting people uh, getting on the ballot was it was very tough because he, the uh, Michael D deliberately left it to the very last minute that he those could. overseas
0: listeners Michael D Higgins is our current president 7 years in the job and every 7 years it revolves he only said he was going to do it for 7 years he's going to run again there's five people running against him Peter's mother
1: um so First of all, the president shouldn't be allowed to nominate himself. Since the state began, it's essentially been a 14 year term instead of a seven year term. And the president is essentially being uh, not, you know, it's it's been it's like a carnation, you Mm. know, rather than. uh, And so most of the presidents have had 14 year terms, with the exception of Mary Robinson, who cut her six months short. She should take up a plum job in Europe, you know, Uh, which she did very well. Oh, she's a disgrace to the to Irish uh, you know to the Irish people you know. You think was, so? Of course, anybody who's given the honour of being uh, uh, chosen to be the president and then takes it up, uh, take, gives up the presidency to take a, a job and a bureaucratic job in, in, in
0: Europe. Uh, no, it's just. But I mean, uh, I would have said like growing up in in Ireland, Erskine Childers was the first president. I mean, De Valera died. Uh, first of all, Erskine Childers took over. It was an old folks golfing home in the park for people mm-hmm. who'd done the state some service I suppose and she mm-hmm. was the first person in my view to come along and do what you guys are all talking about and make it into something no, more she, she had, a, without a
1: doubt she was uh, an inspiration to a lot of women which yeah. was a great thing and she was an inspiration to a lot of younger generation people who had no idea that the president could actually be a woman and no idea that the president could actually do something different yeah. than being as, as you said uh, an old people so almost but then she disgraced her the office by, by, by you mean taking, by leaving early by taking a job you know it'd be different if she, she went if on to become a human rights uh, you know she represented know, she Ireland the you, world stage you know, of human rights at the UN she could have done that after her presidency and I think it was just uh, uh, you know if it had been ill health, she would have gone out as a national hero, heroine, sorry. Uh, but she, I think she was an, uh, she is, is a very good way to, how do you become a nice, from a national inspiration to an national
0: embarrassment very quickly, you know. And so, what about, what about McAleese then Do you
1: do? Uh, you know, I think she was a, she was a very good uh, ambassador for Ireland and she represented Ireland well. And mm. uh, Yeah, I, I think she was, uh, and she was a very, You know, a great role model for a lot of young women uh, to you know to realize what you can do, and
0: yes, and she's definitely she's especially recently been very Mm -hmm. critical of the church. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you how do you see the Ireland that you're vying to become president of, and and its relationship with the church, and how that's gone?
1: Yeah, I the the whole thing about the church at the moment. Even the Pope was here about a month ago, or less than that, Mm. and you know there was. The, the time John Paul II was here Croke Park, in Phoenix Park, there was like over a million people. One or three and, people went you know, to see him, yeah. yeah. And uh, then this time around. More people watching Man United. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it was, it was, you know. But I, I think <laughs> Ireland is definitely changing. For the, for the better, the Catholic Church is facing a real problem. I actually, I don't know if you saw, I tweeted this morning, you know, the Pope came out with a statement saying that, you know, we. We needed to rectify the the wrongs, everything. You know? As far as I can I, I can say, there's no point in apologising for something unless you do something about the thing you're apologising for to make sure it doesn't happen again. It's one thing to say, okay, I'm terribly sorry that you know we apologise, we let the little ones down, and you say that. Well, look, you know it's you know we we need to make sure that uh, the, these paedophile priests are punished, uh, but. The real core of the problem is, that's a symptom of the problem. The problem is the fact that priests are not allowed to get married and women are treated like second-class citizens and they're not allowed to become priests. Now, the Pope, if he was genuinely sorry, I mean, if he really was genuinely sorry about the disaster that is now the Catholic Church, he could turn around this afternoon at 3 o'clock and say, "Okay, I want to do something about this. I hereby announced that priests can get married and women can become priests. And he could say that. There's nobody who could stop him. He's infallible. He's infallible. <laughs> He's God's representative on earth. Now, I've said that to a couple of people and they turn around and say to me, well, he'll be, he'll be killed. Well, you know, that that goes with the turf, you know? <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, John Paul I didn't last too long when he started yeah. shaking up the financials. Um, you know, John you,
0: Paul II was shot. Well, you
1: know, uh, yeah, the Turkish guy, yeah, yeah, he he was shot. He was shot, yeah, Mm -hmm. but you know, um, but a lot of uh, the predecessors, you know, in the role were put to death Mm -hmm. uh, for their beliefs, and uh, you know, I mean, when you take on a job like that, you know, if you look at the church, the attendances in the church today, all around the world, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, you know, I've been all around the world in the last. This year, I've been around the world three times. And everywhere you go, in Sydney, in South Africa, uh, in uh, America, in Ireland, the attendances are down everywhere. You know, The when church I, is a
0: business, and you were a businessman.
1: You would think that he would look at it and go... I mean, I, I went to a, a, a Nazareth uh, convent there when I was travelling around, and there was three nuns now, and there used to be 30. You know, St. Collins College where I went to... You know, there was usually five or six would go on for the priesthood you know and before that i think it was a lot more they haven't had anybody go on to the priesthood from the columns in the last 10 years How would you
0: fix the business of the church
1: well bottom line if you don't fix it it's not going to be in existence you know in 25 years time
0: are you religious
1: um i would say spiritual rather than religious Mm. you know uh, obviously my parents were very religious and uh you know my wife is fairly religious i would Mm. say yeah i mean she would go to church probably twice a month, you know. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't go. Mm. Uh, I used to take the children to church uh, all the time until they were about 12. And they all went to a Catholic school. And it's interesting, uh, two of my children are actually, three of them I'd say are very religious, you know, as in uh, one of my sons will, you know, will say a little prayer before every meal, which actually I find very lovely, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. My daughters, uh, you know, anything that'll, I, they were all... Quite religious and they'd go to church. What and surprisingly, one of my daughters, middle daughter, she, uh, she's actually got her Protestant boyfriend going to church now on Sundays, which I find quite and interesting. good, yeah. And I would never have, uh, I never even picked her as being particularly religious. Uh, but you know, she she won't miss church, and I think that's that's grand. If it if it gives you, my mother was a daily communicant. You know, mm. she would never never miss
0: mass, holy uh, communion all her life. I'll segue in there because I, 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 you, your mother was loomed large in your life and, mm-hmm. and you know a lot of people on Twitter you know who've been following your exploits have been going who the hell is this guy he's an American he's come home so so where were you born and what was it like for you growing up?
1: Well I was born in, a, in Derry in Argyle Street with a little two up two down with an outside toilet you know. Um, Uh, We left Archaeal Street when I was six or seven, so my memories of that are obviously very limited. But uh, then my parents moved to Bishop Street, which is right on the border of the no-go area. So it was part of the the no-go area, so the army and the police were not allowed in. After Bloody Sunday, you know, then the the no-go areas were established. And the people in those areas elected 12 people to represent them. And my father was one of the 12 people, uh, along with John Hume, Sean Keenan, who was actually the, he was the OC of the Irish, uh, of the uh, uh, IRA, uh, the official IRA before this was before uh, the IRA split into the official and the provisional IRA. And Ivor Canavan was uh, on the Bogside Community Association, even though he didn't live in the Bogside. It, it struck me as a bit strange. But, uh, and he organised the. He was one of the organizers of the um, Bloody Sunday March. So just for
0: overseas again, Bloody Sunday was when it all kicked off in 1968-69 in Northern Ireland. It was a peaceful march in Peter's hometown, which uh, British snipers opened fire and innocent people were killed. And that's generally seen as the, the sort of... The, the beginning of the modern day troubles which culminated in the Anglo-Irish agreement. Peter grew up in the very epicentre of this uh, firefight. It was a firefight and you grew up a, you, you grew up a nationalist.
1: Oh yeah. My uh, uncle by marriage on my father's side was Eddie McAteer and he was the leader of the Nationalist Party. His other brother, interestingly enough, was Hugh McAteer, who was actually the Chief of Staff of the IRA and he was actually the last person to escape from Derry Jail back in 1947. So the whole family is very much steeped in republicanism. There was a
0: story where you nearly weren't with us to this day when you were a young fellow.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, well, there's actually quite a few times. <laughs> so my mother uh, used to say to me, you know, son, you, you know, God must have something special for you to do because you shouldn't really be here, you know. And so I, I actually uh, shot myself when I was about ten, with my, down at my grandfather's house with a, the a foot. Two, No, on my shoulder. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, on my shoulder, uh, and uh, I was in the hospital for about a week. How did that happen? He had an infestation of rabbits, and uh, so he had a two two. He used to. You know, protect his uh, his, his crop with. He was sitting out in the garage one day, and he was working on the lawnmower. And uh, I I picked it up. I didn't realise it was loaded. Anyway, ended up uh, went off and hit me in the, the shoulder. And uh, it was Dick Cheney. It? Uh, yeah, yeah, Dick Cheney esque. <laughs> Well, that would have been dictated. So you
0: survived that, but there was a there was something you told me about much more serious when you were yeah. in the middle of a.
1: Well, I used we used to go riding every day after school uh, down to William Street. I was probably about 13, 14. We called it the matinee. Like you'd go down after school, you'd throw stones at the soldiers. The Soldiers at William Street, they would shoot rubber bullets and tear gas, and then you know you'd throw more stones at them. And uh, and then the rubber bullets were actually it was my first sort of commercial endeavour was actually selling rubber bullets. You know, because really? well, there's sort of honour amongst thieves. If you were hit, you were given the bullet. You know, so if, if some if you were hit with a rubber bullet, you, you know. Uh, you, and you didn't get it;
0: they, you'd be given it. Type of they thing. sound a lot tamer than they are because they're pretty vicious. Um,
1: if you get them close up, they are. You know, yeah. the, the the theory is that they're supposed to hit them in the ground; they bounce up, and they're supposed to hit you in the legs and that sort of thing. But they were just firing them straight at you in the head. You know, if you so uh, there was I'm not where anybody actually dying with them. But now the plastic balls were different. That's uh, oh, they right. they were yeah. they were they were very lethal. And uh, there, some people did die of the plastic bullets because they, they would definitely take part of your head off if you hit with one of those at short range. But there was one time we were riding down in William Street and um, Saracen was halfway down behind a building, you know, and it sort of half of it was popped out and half of it was, and then behind it was a big empty space where a building had been burned down and uh, a rubber bullet, it would ricocheted off a wall and ricocheted behind the Saracen, you see. So I was about maybe 30, 40 yards from the Saracen. We were throwing stones at it. And uh, I ran to get the rubber bullet, which was the other side of the Saracen, you know. Mm. And uh, a guy called Mad Dog, uh, that was his nickname, he didn't see me uh, run behind the Saracen. And he threw a nail bomb at it. And it landed right beside the the... Uh, went over the sergeant and landed between me and the sergeant, you know. And I'm like, Oh shit! Uh, so, you know, I had two choices: either run around get to the other side of the sergeant, or you know, try and just lie down. And you know, so I made a split-second decision to run, and I ran straight over a fizzling nail bomb, you know, and uh, dived, go? dived, dived behind the wall, and uh, it went off about two seconds later, you know. So home that night and my ears were all over the place you know pop but very it was lucky. very lucky you know uh, and yeah there's a you know so that were that you was, put under
0: pressure as a kid to join the ira
1: not really you know i mean it, it was more a case of um so the the timeline was that the first uh riot as uh, a first march and riot in Derry, was october the fifth uh, 1968 right and then The the marches became more Mm, prevalent and more often, you know, the thing that really stimulated a lot that kicked it all off, it was they made a decision to put the University of Ulster in Corrine instead of Derry, you know, which would have been the logical second second home because Derry was the second city, of course, Mm. but it was a political decision, uh, you know, when you consider there's 100,000 people in Derry and there's what, 30,000 people in Corrine. And all the people in Derry would have to go to Coleraine, you know.
0: But Coleraine was uh, earmarked for development then, wasn't it? Liz? Well, you know. So they well, they, they, no, they it was, it, Derry. It
1: was, was more it a case of Coleraine. You know. Well, is obviously a very Protestant town. Yeah. And, you know, the topology of Derry is the, the correct dividing line when they were doing the partition uh, should have been the river, the river Foyle. Yeah. And, of course, what happened was, unfortunately uh, for the Protestants uh, their their Jerusalem as a so is to speak is the ancient city the historic city of Derry where uh, King William uh, you know freed the city and that's the history and that's we will not no surrender and that's the the epicenter of loyalism you know their Jerusalem as it were but the, the Protestants uh, all live on the the East Bank and the Catholics are on the West Bank, which is another
0: interesting parallel with the the Jewish situation (laughs) and let's go uh, there. Your main platform, and in fairness, you've had this ever since I've known you to be honest, you've had this idea since certainly 10 years, is that there are 75 million people globally who claim to be of Irish descent. There's 1.5 million people who were born here who live overseas. Mm -hmm. This is in a population in in Ireland now of about 5 million. Yeah. Uh, You used to always refer to the Jewish people uh, as around 12 million and you were always very uh, positive on how they have galvanized as a people globally. Mm -hmm. And you said it would be great if the Irish could do this. And of course, as soon as you got called over for being anti-Semitic and as soon as you say anything you know you, you do tend to, to to get this coming out but I know that you're not and I know that you you meant it just as this comparison right talk to me a little bit about just clarifying that point that it, it, it,
1: it's, it's you know it's amazing how journalists uh, can spin things and they take things completely out of context uh, and, and put, you know obviously they get up in the morning they get an empty pa- sheet of paper and they have to fill it up or they get fired you know but I was down in uh, in Kerry and a guy called Pa Daly a councillor called Pa Daly he came out and he said I would never vote for Peter Casey he said he'd give Trump a warm Irish welcome mm. when he visits Ireland and any friend of Trump is not a friend of Kerry you know uh, you know he took Took it completely out of context because I was asked would I meet Trump when he came to you know and I said of course if, if the t Taoiseach has invited him as his guest to Ireland and as president I absolutely would uh, meet with him and it'd see him. Uh, I think the man is absolutely an embarrassment to the United States. He's a serial womanizer and a woman abuser but if he comes to Ireland he'll get a warm Irish welcome. And uh, I'll remind them that no matter fort- who the president, no is. matter who it is, uh, there's a respect for the office of the president, not the man himself. And I would remind them that we've got fifty thousand uh, uh, Irish people who are undocumented who can't come home for funerals, and I can influence forty million people. But uh, go back to this. Uh, but I mean, getting back to it. So on the clarification, sorry, I segued into mm-hmm. that. So you know. Uh, there's such an amazing, uh, and we, there are so many parallels between the Irish people and the Jewish people. Both have suffered enormously. Obviously, the the Jewish people's suffering at the Holocaust is beyond comparison. But you know, we, we suffered greatly as a nation through uh, English occupation and forced a lot of uh, Irish people that had to leave, had to go, in the famine ships, and you know, it it was just horrendous. That's the sort of thing. Unfortunately, we had to. We had to, to put you know endure, but if you look at what the the Jewish people have been able to achieve by being bonded together, there's a solidarity there that is just you can't but just take it's such so amazing. They're so they're so passionate about supporting each other, you know. That's the sort of uh, passion that I would love to see the Irish people mm. taking a leaf out of their out of their book and. You know, there's it's no... Uh, they had Facebook a thousand years before Facebook came along, uh, you know, and that's what I am would like to achieve. Now, apparently, you can't use the word Jewish people in Ireland anymore because of the Palestinians. Well,
0: where do you stand on that? I mean, what's interesting about the Palestine-Israel uh, situation mm-hmm. versus the Irish-British situation mm-hmm. is that in America, progressive Americans, for obvious reasons, because of these, you know, millions of Irish people who consider themselves Irish in America, they tend to side with us, with the Irish nationalist Mm -hmm. in the the Northern Irish situation. And yet in Israel, again, because of the importance of the Jewish vote in America, they tend to side with Israel against the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. We as a nation tend to side with the Palestinians because that kind of makes more sense. They were the ones who considered themselves to have been invaded. Uh, and yes, before everyone starts getting on my case, there is contentious issues about this. But generally speaking, that is a discussion. And there's a hypocrisy there between America and and, and, and what goes on, which is <laughs> everyone just ignores it. Yeah. You no, know, There's no doubt in my
1: mind that the reason for the troubles in the Middle East is the dire poverty of the Palestinian people. And, and, you know, and that to me is so frustrating because... You know, you look at the Middle East, and you see such incredible displays of ostentatious consumption. You know, you've been to Dubai, you've mm, been to, yeah. to you know, to the you know, Saudi Arabia, and you look at it and you go, you know, there there just so much money there. There's so much wealth there, mm-hmm. and you know, it wouldn't take too much money for it. Saudi Arabia could solve the problem of Palestine tomorrow. Oh. And I, just giving it, writing the check that they wouldn't even notice that they'd written. Just put in a hundred billion into 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 Palestine yeah. and 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 build the infrastructure, build hospitals, build hotels, build universities. They wouldn't even notice they'd written the check.
0: And Israel and, would say about that.
1: You know, I genuinely think that Israel would like to have a peaceful and. You know situation. I don't think Israel necessarily, you know, they're, they're sitting there getting uh, Scud missiles or missiles fired at them, uh, you know. And they, obviously they overreact when they get missiles fired on them. But And I'm not for one second condoning the overreaction of, of Israel. But if we were sitting in New York, if people started shooting missiles from Canada uh, into... Might into, start happening
0: soon. <laughs> well, you know,
1: if, if they started... Uh, If Canada started lobbing missiles into the United States, you have to think that America would would be fairly aggressive in their, you know. So if there was a a huge investment in Palestine by the wealthy Arab 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 states, you know, they they, they claim that they're all brothers and, you know, but they they don't really share the love, the wealth, the money, the, you know. And I say they wouldn't even notice they'd written the cheque. And then they're criticising America for cutting off funding to mm. Palestine. Why doesn't uh, their Arab states help their fellow Arabs?
0: There is this um, hypocrisy of thinking between our country and what's going going on out there. It's a very interesting solution. One thing I'm not going to let you away with, mm-hmm. Peter, yes. is your views on Irish neutrality. OK, so this is a nice segue from missiles. Yeah. You're on record so far in this campaign as saying you find neutrality irrelevant. I don't understand why it could be irrelevant that we need to pay our way in NATO. That we should join NATO. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I find that, as an Irish citizen, fucking scary. Excuse my French. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you're prone to overreaction. You're, you're prone <laughs> to
1: you know. You probably believe in goblins behind the, you know in bed at night. I mean, the reality is that there's several major powers in the world, and there's the Chinese. There's the Russians and there's the Americans. And at the end of the day, those are the three powers, superpowers, in terms of military force, military might, uh, of which, obviously, America is by far the strongest. Europe is aligned with America uh, through NATO. Uh, you're being disingenuous if you, for one second, think that Ireland can defend itself. Ireland. Oh, I know that. Ireland can't defend itself. It's a total waste of money, mm-hmm. Ireland, having an air force. We've got 17 fixed-wing aircraft, yeah. right? But that's not and, the issue. I mean, I know we've got hardly any army. Neutral, why is neutral, neutral, neutrality irrelevant? Neutral, neutral is totally irrelevant. It's basically, you know, the Irish are not a nation of sandbaggers. We are proud people. We pay our bills. God knows we pay our bills. We were forced to even pay bills we shouldn't have been paying, if you look at the bondholders, you know. Right. But anyway, it's an it's an acronistic. It's an outdated concept. There's no such thing as neutrality. Ireland is not neutral. Ireland is part of a global community, and we're aligned with America and NATO and Europe. And for us to pretend that oh we're neutral, nobody gives a flying monkeys whether you're neutral or not. Your know, okay, bottom line yeah. is yeah. the bottom line is you have to you know you're serious about defending your nation. And you can't afford to do it yourself as you've just conceded that you can't afford mm-hmm. ourselves, then defend ourselves. Then you know, the best second best thing is to get somebody else to defend you. Which is exactly what we're doing. At the end of the day, if somebody wanted to invade Ireland, mm-hmm. we would rely on Britain and America, NATO to defend us. But forgive me, you know, me that's the job. The, exactly. And therefore I mean, would you I know, a military but, base you know, of the salty islands a US military base. Exactly.
0: But you exactly. you be up for that?
1: If we're serious about, def- about our national defense, mm. then we have to partner with somebody who can defend us. There's three choices. You can have China, you can have Russia, or you can have NATO. Mm. And now, okay, so we've got NATO, de facto by default, okay? Mm. Now, Greece is paying their 2% for their defence.
0: Well, Greece is holding up against a very volatile we Turkey. Should. Well, that's, that's one of the reasons no, it's why... Gonna, that's it's got a war of, over one of its islands in Cyprus. You know? I mean, kind of issue.
1: Well, you know, but the bottom, we are getting defended by NATO. Are we or are we not? Yes. But exactly. Okay. So therefore, 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 you've just accepted that we're getting defended by NATO. And therefore, we should pay our 2%. It's not something I really feel that strongly about. It's an issue that I raised and just said, you know, that's something that we should look at. If we're going to be a responsible member of the international community,
0: we should pay what everyone else pays. You talked a bit about, you know, the idea that if the government goes rogue and, you know, we have, we have you know, this is, th- th- these are the kind of language that's used in America when it comes to gun control. The reason that the right to bear arms was put into the constitution was to defend yourself. Back in the day, if the, our government won't go rogue, you know, it's almost like would we have a more relaxed gun control here in Ireland? I mean, I know these are things outside the presidency, but I'm interested just in your in your views on them.
1: Um, you're referring to a comment that I made when I was given an explanation to how it pertained to the powers of the president. The president is the commander in chief of the armed Small forces. Army. Yeah. Well, he's yeah. the commander in chief. Yeah. He doesn't have the control day to day of the defence forces. That is under the jurisdiction of the Minister for Defence. Now, the reason that the Constitution was written the way it is, is that the army and the armed forces, they swear allegiance to the President and not to the Taoiseach. And it was put in with Northern Ireland in mind so that if the government of the day decided to invade Northern Ireland, the President could step in and say no. And he can override the government of the day, and the only incidents where that would have any bearing would be in the event that something was to go on with Northern Ireland, and that was the reason it was put into the constitution. And that's what I was referring to, and I was explaining to a journalist because he was asking me why this. So you know Robert was asking you. Yeah. So that, that well, was well, a okay.
0: On. We we we, hmm. we move on, except to say that, that, that you know I I would say to you that NATO has become relevant in in many ways in a sense that the sort of wars we'll be fighting in the future will be very different wars. We also, luckily, I mean, there's loads of exceptions and Russia's behaving weirdly and there's lots of things that could go off, but there's always been that. But the nature of humanity is that we're learning that wars don't really work.
1: Um, You know, I'm not sure that I necessarily agree with you. I mean, I, I think if you look at what happened... You Know in Bosnia, Herzegovina, if yeah. it wasn't for NATO right. stepping in, well, for America, I think well, Europe, America Europe made
0: an absolute mess of that, yeah.
1: And that's that's an example now where you know, if we were being paying our way and being a responsible member of the European community, which everybody says we want to be a member of the European community, there's a, a little price tag that goes along with it. The idea that we
0: do so much in the UN, to yeah. we, we've, we've well, paid our way there, uh, peacekeepers. Um, We'll move on. You just mentioned Brexit. How do you feel it's going to impact Ireland?
1: Um, I was of the opinion that it was going to be like the Y2K crisis, the crisis you have when you're not Mm -hmm. having a crisis, you know, (laughs) and that the whole thing, you know, you remember that drink in Australia, Clayton's, uh, the drink you're having when you're not having a drink, you know, and I, I thought it was going to be a Clayton's issue. Um, um, And that basically they would kick the can down the road, give Britain another two years to negotiate an exit and then in the meantime uh, the government would be kicked out and there would be another referendum and this time they'd vote to stay in. The logic was that uh, the justification of having another referendum was that they said people didn't know what they were voting for. You know, which is a bit insulting to the people who voted the first time around. You know, you're now saying that, you know, you, we didn't think you were very intelligent the first time and you've suddenly developed an intelligence gene that you didn't have previously. So, you know, I, I think that's insulting to the British people. So I, I, I wouldn't be in favour of another referendum. Just philosophically I think it's the wrong thing to do. People's people spoken, they should be listened to. What uh, about the
0: argument that what they were voting on was misinformation?
1: Well, I don't think that it was misinformation. The, the, the reason, and everybody's been too politically correct to say, the reason they voted the way they voted was because they were tired of Germany being top dog and Germany sort of dominating everything. Mm. And they looked around and saw that Germany had brought down five governments without firing a single bullet. Uh, so, you know, they were looking at that and going... Uh, we're proud, uh, and there has been a, uh, you know, whether you, you like it or not, there's been a sort of swing towards nationalism and sure. more right wing, and it was more a reflection of that. The fact that they didn't understand the micro microeconomics of it, is not really the issue. Yes, they didn't understand the microeconomics of it. Uh, you know, I appreciate that, and nobody could have possibly understood it. But interestingly enough, you know, I was a, a member of the Good Friday Peace uh, Team, you know, a delegation to the White House. And we looked and discussed every possible scenario when we were talking about you know how it would evolve. We looked at a UDF, you know an independent Ulster that would break away but would be part of Europe. Mm-hmm. We looked at every single sort of what if scenario. The one scenario that no one, no one put on the table was what happens if Britain decides to leave the EU. Yeah. Nobody even thought of it yeah, yeah. because they didn't even think it was remotely possible that that would happen. And now you've got a, a strange situation where you've got uh, Michel Barnier uh, saying there must be a backstop. Now he's a bureaucrat, by the way. He's not an elected official. He's, you know, he's appointed by the, mm. the Commission to negotiate this. He's saying there must be a backstop. And then you've got the unionists uh, in Northern Ireland saying they must be there must be no 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 border between England and Northern Ireland. And then you've got Sinn Féin in favour of staying in the e- e- EU as well. They could torpedo Brexit if they wanted to. They've got six Sinn Féin you know, members of Parliament, and they could go over and vote and overturn the bre- you know, the government, and Theresa May would be out of office. Mm. And they're not doing it. And then you've got, of course, Leo Varicar, the Taoiseach here. He's been assured by Michel Barnier yeah. that there will not be a border in the Ireland of Ireland. Uh, now, how can you... Give that commitment to Leo and say there will not be a border in the island of Ireland. And at the same time, Barnier is saying there must be a backstop. If a backstop equals border, people need to stop using two terms simultaneously because it's confusing people. Backstop equals border. Mm -hmm. Barnier is saying there must be a backstop. And then on the other hand, they tell Leo there'll never be a border. And that the Good Friday Agreement. It's It's semantics. If there is a backstop and a border, it has to be enforced. Even if they say it's a technological border, you put cameras on, people will shoot out the cameras, okay? Mm. And they'll throw stones at the cameras and they'll break the cameras. Mm. People will have to be put in to protect the cameras. That means people will be on the ground.
0: Sentry post.
1: And there'll be a sentry post. People will start attacking the sentry post. And then we're back pretty much to where we were 20 years ago. And that's why it's disingenuous. Now, putting it in perspective, Mm. the GDP of Northern Ireland is 60 billion the GDP of the combined EU community is £17.9 You know, it's not even a rounding error, it's such an insignificant, such a small insignificant thing. Now, the problem is though, if Britain leaves, then everybody could ship all their goods into Northern Ireland and there'd be no taxes on it because we could, you know, from America into Northern Ireland. And then there'd be no border to stop them flowing into the Republic of Ireland and then on on into Europe. Mm -hmm. So Ireland would basically follow a pathway through, you know. Where's the solution? Uh, I, 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 I genuinely think that the more likely scenario is the one I talked about where they'll kick it down the road for a couple of years, another election, and they'll vote to return it. But if that doesn't happen... The only solution that I can see is a UDI, an independent declaration, unilateral declaration of independence. Northern Ireland would be part of the Commonwealth. And then and presumably
0: Scotland follows. Well, that's the
1: reason that Britain doesn't want to go down that route, mm. because Scotland would then immediately follow, and Wales, in all probability, Wales would follow. Wales God, do we have to? Oh, all right. Right. You know. <laughs> <laughs> And so that's the reason that Britain doesn't want to go down that route, because that would cause a total breakup of the United Kingdom as we know it. However, I think that that is the only solution uh, if we don't have the first scenario, because then you'd have Northern Ireland would be part of the EU. Britain would support the funding of the new state of Northern Ireland, along with Brussels, and the European community, you know, because we'd be, Northern Ireland is a complete financial basket case. Yeah. The last thing the public wants is to have an extra 15, 20 billion uh, onto its paper, you know. And so they definitely don't want that. And so that is, now that scenario, interestingly enough, though, would essentially lead you to de facto a united Ireland, because Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, would all be part of the EU and there'd be well would no, be separate countries there'd be separate countries yeah. but you know it'd be really like a county council you know yeah. I mean there's there's a very good possibility that Kerry could break away you know and, and form the kingdom of Kerry and, and Cork and, and the, you know and why, Cork will follow suit well you know I mean uh, if you look at and Leitrim at uh, Galway I mean look at Galway <laughs> Galway, Cork uh, you know yeah, yeah. they're such huge counties but that's the only solution that I can see to it you know if you what's your prediction? they'll kick it down the road
0: Okay, now before we, talk, I want to get back. before we finish, I want to talk about the presidency specifically, but I also want to talk about a couple of things. One, I was away for 26 years. Yes. Um, and I came back two years ago, and I noticed that things that were a problem in 1996 when I left crumbling education system in need of reform, which I know you have big ideas about. Yeah. A health system that's still creaking at the seams, they were talking about people on waiting lists and trolleys way back then. Yeah. A homelessness situation that has got embarrassing and for some reason a refusal by a, uh, I don't know, something sinister in the capitalism of makeup of our country that refuses to make free houses for people, in my view, that's become an embarrassment. A lack of creativity in government and a lack of action. Mm-hmm. And those five things, in my view, and I have spoken on this podcast before about it, are still the problem that we have in this country today. Mm-hmm. The president is not expected to fix them, but I want to get your point of view Let's start with uh, education, because I know you have some big ideas there where you may be able to affect change, and also homelessness, which is a starting to become a global embarrassment, I think. Well, education, you know, we talked a little bit about
1: the revolution that's going to take part in education through MOOCs and whatnot. If you look at the cost of education, it's spiraling now to, to the levels where, you know, and not, not just, and it's overlapping with the housing issue, but you look at the cost of living, as a student in Dublin, I mean, it's, it's off the charts. Yeah, yeah. It's not just the education, it's having, you know, that's what students now, if you don't live in Dublin, you have, and, and you're able to live at home with your parents, you know, it's it's prohibitive. So we need to, to lower the cost of
0: education. The MOOCs platform we've talked about will absolutely do that. Peter's proposing massive on, open online courses, which is a, a relatively new thing that leverages the internet and then puts courses online for free uh, to a a huge audience including much of Africa uh, will will hopefully be educated this way but it it does have some teething problems in a sense a lot of people don't tend to finish and they don't have the kind of the motivation to get up every day and go to college and there there are some issues with it although AI and stuff like that may set that straight. You talk about the land of saints and scholars and we should be uh, using our universities to Utilise technology to become global players. Is that fair? Exactly. I mean, it's it's essentially the modularisation of degree courses. So you can do a part of
1: your degree in Sydney, Australia, and then you can come over and do a module in Dublin or in Limerick or Galway or wherever your parents came from originally. You know, and that'll give you a chance to bond with the, you know, your maybe your relatives, your parents' relatives. But you then go back to Sydney or wherever you came from and you'd get the credit for the semester that you spent over here. And that would be another way of stoking and fueling the Irish. Tour of Nationalism and you also have the
0: birthright program let's give a quick explanation of
1: that birthright program is uh, very simple it, again emulating uh, the Israeli birth, they have a similar program and you go over to Ireland spend a m- uh, month in Ireland uh, in the summer you'll go and spend two weeks in the Gale talk in rural Ireland understand you know, the, 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 what it's like to live in rural Ireland and then go up to Derry and Belfast understand the history of the troubles and the conflict and then go down to Dublin and spend a, a week in Dublin and see how amazingly beautiful Dublin is and just soak up the the experience of the culture in Dublin, and then go back to Sydney or South Africa or wherever you're from, and then you're they, they'll be all pumped up and so. But you, I mean,
0: there's an assumption based into the, this diaspora are all wealthy. You know, I mean, they're not. not. You are, but I mean, I know you and I know you, you. Your kids are all very respectful of the, of the price of a dollar. I know that you can still that in them, uh, you and Helen. But they're not all wealthy. They don't have the money to just be sending. Their kids over for a jelly over no, to but, Ireland. No, no but you,
1: you start off. You start off with the wealthy ones, you know, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know, and there's a lot, of, lot of wealthy ones, mm-hmm. you know. You know, once the program gets going, it'll be self-funding. And this is exactly what happened in, in Israel. You know, the, the government realized this is a money spinner. This is a real little earner here. And now they've had over 600,000 uh, young Jewish people have gone to Israel yeah. since the program began in, in, in uh, 1998. So you know, that, that's an amazing, you know, in 20 years, there's 600,000 have gone.
0: And but what about the idea that the, the, the Irish people don't like Irish Americans? They don't like them. I that mean, I know they. Just, could, that is just not but, true. Well, They, they, that is, that, they that contribute a, a lot. That they come over here and they look for me. the little oh. babbling brook where their grandfather was born, their green jerseys, and we look, we look after them. But it's all a bit paddywhackery, and you know, the gathering was a good example, which was a shakedown. You I know, thought, I, no? I,
1: you know, I, I think it, the, sh- the gathering was a little bit of a shakedown to an extent, I suppose. Mm-hmm there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that it is a, a phenomenal opportunity to... You know, you look at people like Chuck Feeney. Yeah,
0: you know, but Chuck worked very under the radar. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. But he still gave $2 billion to education in, it, in uh, Ireland.
0: $2 well, billion the, the to reason education. Chuck Feeney didn't you know, come running in with his leprechaun flags waving, going, look at all the money I'm putting into Limerick University. He didn't do it no, that he, way. He, but he, he did, did it more than no. J.P. McManus, kind of, under the table. Quite well, J.P. Way.
1: wasn't that much under the table now. It was in every newspaper, TV, radio station. Early J.P. In fairness to J.P., anybody who he gives, money, anybody who gives money away deserves any accolades
0: that goes with Have it. Have you given money away? I have indeed, what yeah. It, what, what are some of the oh, charities you've been involved
1: in? Uh, well, actually we've got one next week that we're sponsoring. It's a Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. It's a golf tournament. Uh, we've been sponsoring that for probably 15 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an orphanage in Africa that we've been sponsoring in Yeovil, uh in Johannesburg. It's for children who've got HIV. And we, we've run golf tournaments and just sent money to them, you know. I think it's important if you have something to give back yeah. and, you know, there's absolutely no doubt that what you give comes back tenfold. Uh, I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that's uh, and I've noticed, I remember one time when things were really bad after 9-11 and the company was, they like, hit really, really big time. After 9-11 there was just a massive uh, sort of analysis paralysis in the IT that spent so much money... Peter's business is
0: called was called, I think he's left a nap to, to run, but Resources, which were very big in uh, recruitment, did a lot of work with Tata, in one of the most respected companies in the world from out of India. Um, I want to go back and finish that point about Irish-Americans. Maybe I was a bit mean to them, but the, the, the issue is, Peter, that, that we have... There's a lot of people in America who, who look at Ireland through green-tinted spectacles. They look at an Ireland that was... You know John Wayne and the Quiet Man and the Famine. Ireland today is has just voted to relax its uh, very severe abortion laws. We've just uh, been one of the first countries in the world to, to make same sex marriage a thing. Mm-hmm. There's a different Ireland today, and 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 I. Well, even, you're, you're. I'm fifty, and I've come home, and I find it different, and I find myself a little bit out of touch.
1: So. I I, so what word do you? I mean, yes, it is different, of course. I mean, if Ireland today is seventeen percent of the people in Ireland today were not born in Ireland, twenty-five percent of the people living in Dublin were not born in Ireland, Mm. thirty-three percent of the people working in Dublin were not born in Dublin, Mm. thirty-three percent of the working population in Dublin were not born in Dublin. Yeah, now Ireland has been the recipient of such incredible generosity over the over the decades, and I think it's only fair that we open our arms to people to come in and and share the Irish experience. I put in the caveat, by the way, that it's important we have something incredibly special: our Irish culture, our Irish history, our, you know. So I would say to people coming from foreign countries, you're most welcome, but don't try and change us. If you want to change us, stay where you are. Uh, you know, I'm very proud of the Irish culture, the Irish traditions, but don't try and change us. Accept our culture, accept our traditions, accept the way we are and, you know, learn our language, you know, and, and then be part of, not necessarily Gaelic, but English. Not necessarily Irish. <laughs> not necessarily Irish, you know, because, yeah. you know, you can't expect them to learn a language that only 2% of the population, Indeed. you know. You, you
0: have committed to saying you're going to learn it if you become president, right? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Um, to, to, and how do you fix homelessness? I have to ask that because it's driving me nuts. Well, homeless, you, you, you know, the
1: problem with homelessness, you have to look at the symptoms and then look at the, the reason for the problem. A bit like the Catholic Church, you know, there's symptoms which is paedophiles and that, and with homelessness. It's a complete lack of infrastructure spend in rural Ireland. In other words, if we had made rural Ireland much more attractive for people to live in, more attractive for companies to put their businesses there, you wouldn't have this overheating, over-concentration of Dublin. You know, at the moment, people are having to travel. I, I spoke to a young lady yesterday. She was spending an hour and 45 minutes getting to and from work. Three hours a day of her life that she'll never get back. We need to make it so that rural Ireland is attractive to businesses, attractive to young people setting up their families. And to do that, we need to put the IT infrastructure in there. There needs to be, you know, well, it's one of the things that really frustrates me. We completely messed up the whole uh, telecom broadcast, you know, yeah. situation. We should have gone straight to 4G. We spent hundreds of millions mm. of euros putting cable in the ground that will never get back. In five years' time, we'll be going, why did we waste all this money putting cable but if we built up the infrastructure properly you know like for example it takes me about four hours now to get to my home in Donegal you get motorway to Belfast and after that the A5 is like a nightmare and you're going through all these little towns and villages and you get stuck behind tractor trailers and it's just brutal but if we invested in the infrastructure so that rural Ireland was attractive I mean you can get a beautiful four-bedroomed house with water views in Donegal for a hundred thousand and you know and in Dublin you wouldn't get a one bedroom apartment. you've got a situation now where people who are born in Dublin live reared in Dublin and they can't afford to live in Dublin because you know there's this massive over concentration in the IT sector particularly right and pharmaceuticals and you know Microsoft for example announced that they're creating 250 new jobs that's such a lie there's not 250 new jobs they're going to go out and pinch people from other firms, and that creates a vacancy. They'll go to somebody at Salesforce. And say, look, I've at this great job at Microsoft. Oh, I'm very happy where I am. I will give you another twenty percent. So of course you'll go from Salesforce over to Microsoft. That leaves a vacancy at Salesforce. Then Salesforce goes to the person's working at Accenture. Oh, got this great job over here. I'm very happy at Accenture. Oh, but we'll I will mean, give you another, we'll give you another, right? we'll give you another, we'll give you another twenty percent. And and they go, oh, and then there's a vacancy at. So it's musical chairs going upwards and upwards mm. in the salary level. What that does is it pushes people off the bottom of the rungs. People that were just about to get in the rung, house prices have gone up another 15-20% and they can't get on the ladder. And I think the politicians are lying when they this. it's deceitful. When they turn around, the minister announced 250 new jobs. They're not new jobs. They're recycling existing jobs and putting up the wage levels. If those jobs were based in Drogheda If they were based in Kildare, if they were based out, you know, outside of Dublin, then yes, they'd be, they'd be great. But they're not.
0: They're just, you know, pushing up the rental prices. When in the Dublin. new company comes in and sets up in Dublin and hires two hundred people. That means there's 200 extra jobs in the universe no. of jobs in Dublin. No, it would only be it that. does that another company is producing. It's not as if there's
1: 200 people sitting there waiting for a job. There's not. In Dublin, in the IT sector, there's not. There's right. a chronic shortage. So, the, for example, you know, I, I was playing golf with a colleague in Atlanta. And uh, he's a CFO of a company called Rootmatch, a very on supply chain company. And he said to me, uh, we're looking to set up in Ireland. He said, I said, where? He said, Dublin. I said, absolutely, don't even think of Dublin. He said, why not? I said, first of all, you'll have to pay much more for your office space, you'll have to pay much more for your staff, and the most important thing is you'll have a higher turnover staff because they'll be pinched all the time by, by your competitors. You know? And he said, where do you recommend? I said, look, at it's one of the, the towns surrounding, You know, so look at somewhere, somewhere like Dundalk, Drogheda, handy for the airport, and you can get in and out quickly. And you can get into Dublin when you want to go to Dublin. He said, "Well, all my clients are in Dublin." I said, "Not a problem. You can get in, you know, to see them." It's a reverse commute if you if you wait till after the traffic hour, and you'll you'll end up. We'll Take a creaky train. Uh, so he ended up uh, going to Waterford. So we might set up in Waterford. We help start them up in Waterford.
0: But how do we fix homelessness?
1: By focusing infrastructure spend on rural outside Ireland. Of, outside of Dublin. Yes. Now, in the short term. I don't know where this concept came in that everybody had to be given a home. I mean, that wasn't the case when you were growing up in Ireland. It wasn't the case, and well, certainly when I was growing up.
0: There are people in society who can't be the success story that you were, who can't come from the bog side of Derry and build a business, because they're not smart enough. They don't have an IQ. They haven't had the opportunity. It's not a meritocracy Does that mean you in your you have in to give them a home? home? Yes. Why
1: oh, do you yeah. to, Why do you have to give them a home? why do you have to give them a home in Dublin?
0: Or or give them, them, why not kids give go them to school in Dublin.
1: Yeah, Well, you know, I mean... maybe. Why, why do we okay. let Dublin
0: become the most well, expensive city in Europe? Why well, no, we
1: well, you have to face the realities. It is that it's one of the most yeah, expensive cities in Europe. So, you know, I'm sorry. But why have we let that happen? I, well, because we haven't been spending the money on in, infrastructure spend in rural Ireland. You're not going to fix the housing problem in Ireland, Dublin short-term. I mean, yes, there's some things you could do short-term that would, you know, short-term that would help. So, for example putting timber frame houses up. Mm. You know, they talk about affordable housing. Mm. Timber frame houses can be put up in a matter of weeks. They, they're not made of bricks and mortar. They're made of timber frame, and you can put stucco on them, and they'll last for 70 to 80 years. And they're better for heating and insulation, yeah.
0: everything. But people... are not even doing that. They're not even but doing well, that. Well, why, why shouldn't every Irish citizen, in the Constitution maybe, have the right to shelter? Yeah. And the government... Are you and Our I mean, taxes. Well, have to then then, them. then you, should, you, should go
1: to, you should go to Cuba. They do that. The answer is not Marxism. You go, the answer well, is humanity you know, and compassion. No, no. Uh, the answer is uh, that you, there's no God-given right to own a house or a home. I don't see it as that. You know well, what happens then? Um, you know, uh, people you, you, live on the you, side you, of the you road. Can, no, you can rent.
0: You can rent. You <laughs> know? Okay, what about the person well, got, who has no money, who does drugs, has got mental health issues? who has two children, uh, she's a single mom, and she can't... Well, you, you well, create well, this What do we do with that? Well, you, you create, you create,
1: uh, you know, you've got this situation now, and, you know, it started so you can't put the genie back into the bottle. What started, that? You know, it's now you got to the stage where a person will turn down a two-bedroom home because they want a three-bedroom home. But who's doing that? Oh, there's lots of people How doing, many? doing that. out of the 10,000? I've talked to lots of counsellors all around Ireland, they tell me the same thing is happening. People, you know, will get themselves on the waiting list for a house when they're in their early 20s, knowing that eventually by the time they get to their late 20s, they'll have been able to turn down one or two so they get a two or three bedroom home. I don't okay, know so we have, we have, we've, There's we've, this culture 10, of... 10,000 homeless right you know, now. It sounds like we, a we capitalist
0: don't, excuse we, we as don't, to why we're not building house. I don't think we have
1: 10,000 homeless. You know, and or in you temporary know, accommodation. And, and, you know, uh, you know, the idea of our homeless people being put up in hotels and complaining about being in hotels. I mean, I, 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 I'm still trying to work my
0: mind around why people complain but about being put up in
1: hotels. Yeah, they're but,
0: often in shitty hotels, miles from where the kids go to school. They have the mothers have to leave the hotel and come back that night. The reality. They're perfumed at ten o'clock. The reality. The, the real, rea- No, that is the reality.
1: Yeah, but the reality is that people need to understand that this problem in Dublin is not going to go away anytime soon. And it's not just Dublin. No, but, well, it's mostly Dublin. It's not. See, Uh, this is the issue. No, but we don't have very much homelessness in Donegal now. Okay. There are still some
0: people homeless in Donegal. Very few, though. Okay, very few. It's a a national problem because capitalism has protected property and, and, and refuses to build free or give someone a free house.
1: Giving somebody something for free isn't necessarily the solution to any problem. People tend to not appreciate things that they're given for free, and that you know, I how you, as I said earlier, I don't believe you can't put that genie back into the bottle. We might build social we've, housing. Well, social housing—you just people will, you know, not respect if you give them something for nothing. You know, and why should you give If I don't home? have
0: a home and someone gives me a home, I will be forever in debt to them.
1: I have heard so many counsellors. Complain that people are turning down houses because they want a better house somewhere else. When well, you said that, you know, and that is, you know, I it, it, you with you well, that. You know, you'd be, but,
0: I'm sure it has happened.
1: You haven't got the experience not. of that I have of going around the councils. I have gone around the councils yeah. on two separate occasions down yeah. in the last three years. I know many of them very, very well, and they tell me the same thing.
0: But the councils and, are part of the problem that none of the houses have been built. We leave it at that one, and we go back to different. I want to come back to your election because. <laughs> To be fair to Peter, a lot of the things we talked about here, and he knows this, so I'm not, you know, he, he, the, the, the presidential job is largely titular. And these guys, there's, there's four people running against the incumbent Michael D. Higgins. Five. Five people running, sorry, uh, four plus Peter running against him. Uh, and it is a titular role, and we've covered some of the, the, the responsibilities, but largely it's representing Ireland. Peter's in a hurry now, I can see he's checking his phone. I want to ask one <laughs> question before we go. You drove a golf ball into Lock Foyle and you got 110,000 views last week on it and it was a funny video and you jumped, you jumped in tongue-in-cheek to find the golf ball. You're to your point about undoing a wrong when you make one. The Irish Times today has an opinion piece which you said you hadn't seen, but there was a line that which says, from the outset it has been clear that in a comparatively weak field, the biggest obstacle to Michael D Higgins' re-election is complacency or self-inflicted damage. Gavin Duffy, when he launched his campaign he made a big song and dance yesterday about the fact that he and his wife have never done anything embarrassing or that might embarrass their children. You said, this is the only driver I'm bringing into the auras. What are we all missing here? There's something going on. Cause I can smell it
1: <laughs> <laughs> or yeah. are you all just
0: playing the game? It's now in the Irish times. That's that, that is, that is a sea change of support from, uh, Michael D. Higgins is a shoe-in. You have said from the start that he's not going to get re-elected. I'm getting all these little sort of... Maybe I'm misreading. Am I misreading everything? Do you know, I, I... I was in
1: a taxi the other day and the taxi drivers, as you know, if you really want to understand what people are thinking and feeling, talk to a taxi driver or talk to a hairdresser. And the taxi driver said to me, he said, Peter, I just heard you the, on the radio there. He said, you were, you were very impressive. Very impressive. He said, uh, I won't be voting for you, but you were very impressive. I said, um, well, why would you not vote for me? He said, oh, I don't think we should have a fucking president. <laughs> you know, I, 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 he said, I said, why not? Actually, he does nothing. Costs us a fortune. Does nothing. Costs a fortune. That's the impression that I believe the vast majority of people in, in Dublin. Probably think, and of well, course I, would, I would,
0: You know, know, I think he's one of the issues I would I, I would say is he's great at pr- promoting the arts. Yes. He, you know, he, but you
1: know, the, the arts is not where Ireland is at now. We need Why somebody. Who, we need somebody who understands international business, international relationships, international finance and funding. You know, somebody who can help sell. You know. Corporate Ireland. Somebody who can tie the diaspora together. Somebody who can really, you know, we have an opportunity. Turn us into Luxembourg. Somebody who can make us really fight above our weight. That's what we need. This president has done absolutely nothing. Now, you know, the biggest indictment of him is that a taxi driver says we shouldn't have a president. But you know, and you ask people, so what did he do that you really liked? Oh, sure, he was great with the Queen. I mean, great with the Queen. I mean. He, he, you know, if you meet the Queen, you're told where to stand, you're told where to sit, you're told what to do, mm-hmm. you're told when to shake her hand, you're told, you know, and what to, not to do. I mean, anybody could be great with the Queen, yeah. you know. Uh, what is, am I missing? I think that, you know, there's obviously... Uh,
0: is well, it the money? No, you're I, You're, you're I, Adam at the money, that he's spending too much. You I, said you'd send the salary back, which to me sounded a worrying precedent. That says this is a a, a a role for rich people. You know, there's a, there's an argument that could say that. What does the next person say? No, I actually need the money, John. Freeman, no, no, the no I have I have said I have. No, I just
1: clarify that one point, and then you know, obviously, uh, I've said that the president absolutely should get paid a salary, but I just think it's wrong that he gets paid. You know, such a ridiculous salary. Uh, you know, it's much more than t- the he shook. and that's wrong, and that shouldn't be the case. And that needs to be rectified. His expenses need to be visible. People need to see what they're getting, what he's using the money for. It came up that he's gotten three hundred seventeen thousand uh, spent, three hundred seventeen thousand, and nobody knows what it's. For he takes his driver with him everywhere, uh, you know, and uh, you know, we don't need to be paying for his driver to be going on international this was trips. Your driver reference. This was my driver okay. reference. There, d- there's something else
0: and I, I there, may not be, but I'm just I don't
1: know, Sean. You know, you know, you know, the situation as well as I do about mm-hmm. his driver. Uh, but I don't think his driver should be going with him on all his international trips and being put up in a hotel, mm-hmm. you know, at the taxpayer's expense. The
0: driver should stay at home you know or in your golf bag but it shouldn't be going on trips with you listen good luck with your the rest of your campaign peter casey launches his campaign uh, tomorrow friday in dublin uh, the election is when the 25th twenty sixth, 26 and we'll hopefully and, get a good result um, on the 20th he'll it's, be debating uh, against michael d higgins i think two or three times by the looks of it because i think he's he's agreed to come on
1: um, uh no he's actually said he's not, oh, he's, uh, not he's
0: not coming he's uh do you think that's unfair
1: I think he's obviously got something to hide, and I think hopefully what he's hiding will come out before the election date. So who knows, but uh, I think it's it's disgraceful that he's not prepared to come and tell. He went to meet a member of the British royal family rather than tell the Irish people why he deserved another seven years. Yeah. He went to meet, he wasn't, it'd be different if he perhaps had a pre-arranged meeting with the Queen, I could go get over that, but meeting number 10 to the throne, what did they talk about at that meeting that was so important, that that was more important than telling the Irish people what he'd done for the last seven years and what he's going to do for the next seven years? The taxi driver was right. We would be much better off without a president like the one we have, you know, because he's eroding the presidency. And that's why he doesn't deserve another seven years.
0: Thank you for being on a fight with Sean Eby.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, Sean.